and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. This time, with all hope, we will not have any technical difficulties. Knock on wood. Devin joins me today from Chicago. What are you up to, man? Oh, besides this and that, um, got a few shoots coming up. Got a flight out to California, so I'm trying to find a way to uh, pack up gear nice and tight for that. Uh, but um, I was t- today I was trying to figure out a way to get HDMI to go over 200 feet of Cat 5, and uh, it's not physically possible. It's just not in the cards for me. <laughs> Have you tried one of those uh, repeaters? They, uh, well, they, yeah, no, uh, no, well. I- one of those splitters, I did try one of those, and uh, the one that was rated for 200, and I didn't think uh, I was going to try to do too much with the resolution. It was only 1080i, but man, it's super picky about uh, Cat5e cable versus Cat6 cable, and after it goes through a few connectors, because we're going through the in-wall installation in the building, it just ends up not quite making it all the way there, which is unfortunate. So um, we'll have to go with the more pricier option of taking HDMI, converting it over to HDSDI, because, of course, that'll have no problem getting all the way to the control room. Well, on my end, I am getting audited by the IRS. A uh, quick uh, story for you guys and a uh, warning for everybody. Um, PayPal, uh, one of the things I did last year was I helped out a couple of film festivals by collecting money for them via PayPal. Well, it turns out if you cross the $20,000 mark of income via PayPal, they report it to the IRS, and now you're on the hook for roughly half of that for income tax. So if anybody ever asks you to politely collect money for them for any kind of event, be very cautious as to how much money you actually collect because now I am on the hook for $9,000. No new car for DJ because it's going to the IRS. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully you can get that computer uh, under warranty there. God forbid you have to uh, buy some new computer parts, right? To make your show keep going, (laughs) man, that, that stinks. And that's uh, were you schedule C on that? Uh, Yeah. So I didn't know this until I actually, cause I've never actually collected that much money into uh, PayPal before. And it crossed over that there is some sort of negotiation they have with the IRS that they put out a schedule C form when you cross the two or $20,000 mark. So as soon as you hit $20,000, they report it, but before that, they don't report anything. So in the past, I've you know I've collected a few hundred dollars here and there, a thousand dollars here and there, and it's not been that big of a deal. But the festivals did pretty well this year, and I didn't even keep track of it. You know, you start bringing in two or three thousand dollars a month for that sort of ticket fee thing, and bam, now you are in the red zone. So, um, you know, if I were lucky. Uh, I could have squeezed underneath of their non-for-profit status, but uh, because I was not actually affiliated with them and I was simply helping out because they were computer illiterate, um, I am now responsible for it. So that sucks. Um, on that exciting, happy note, time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. First up, we've got some kind of interesting stuff here. This is a online video editing program. It is called, let me see here, Mosh. Mosh, I believe. And you can find it at getmosh.io. 
If you ever wanted that sort of digital effect on your photos or video, this has a bunch of really easy to use online tools that allow you to just process and randomly affect photos and videos. Uh, you can do rolling issues like you used to have when signals weren't coming in correctly. You can do all kinds of digital weirdness, uh, a bunch of like blocking and pixelating and stuff like that. And this is free, so it's pretty cool. It's pretty interesting. Devin, have you used anything like this in your travels? Well, I tell you, it uh, it takes what would normally be about 50 clicks inside of After Effects and uh, does it in just one. Uh, it's it, Especially if you're going for that look, that glitch look, um, which I still think is modern and cool because I don't ever think it was overused probably in uh, you know 2010 or something like that when it became popular to have chromatic aberrations in your footage. Um, it's uh, it's it's also all the effects are moving. So even when you say, "Hey, I want to have uh, you know lines here or blur here or something like that," it actually moves it. Uh, so if you are doing video and not just photos with it, it's a quick, dirty way, I guess, of adding some really cool glitch effects. And it's one of those that um, you know you could send it if you're making uh, you know say the ring or something like that. You're trying to get a, a glitchy look on a television set. This is something that could take just a few seconds to paint your entire video in that look, as opposed to After Effects, where you're either buying looks off of people or you're spending a lot of time playing with keyframes, trying to get something to move and create some kind of cool look. So within seconds, I'm literally able to create some really cool glitch. And um, and that's always a win in my book. That's something I'll save away uh, just for those rainy days when you know you need uh, something quick and dirty. Well, especially if you're working with like a, a music video or something like that, this could be really awesome for maybe a punk or a cyberpunk style like techno band if you want to get that really weird glitching effect. What I'd like to see on this, and maybe they'll add this in the future, is some way to uh, drive the effects based on an audio level or an audio signal, like um, maybe set a bass frequency or something like that. Because wouldn't it be really awesome if every time the bass drum hit in a shot, the thing just did that like kind of uh, rainbow pattern digital effect on everything and then went back to normal again or did you know some kind of rolling shutter or something like that absolutely that sounds sexy and now i want to that is that, that is and this and that is something that um that that you can do with a little bit of scripting and possibly one or two plugins inside of after effects you can take something like audio data of amplitude straight in after effects and uh use that as um uh, what do they call the scripts? They call they call scripting something weird. Uh, expressions, uh, and you can link that value as an expression to then modify a value for your glitch effect. So, uh, I've I've done a few things like that, not necessarily with controlling like chromatic aberrations, but I have done a bass pedal that causes um, a blur to happen on the screen. And it's if uh, with one or two plugins or something like that, uh, it's actually really easy to do. Or even too, if you take your a music file and you just cut it down you run like a low pass filter so all you get is kind of the frequencies you want uh the audio uh effect built into after effects to read the audio data that's it's just based on amplitude but if you cut out and only give it the frequencies you want it to affect anyways uh then you just lay that down in your after effects timeline and you have the data that you that you need i know that um I don't think it's Red Giant, but somebody makes a plugin that'll actually, you can select which frequencies correlate with what uh, and modifiers and all kinds of stuff like that. But you can do it for free Well, with After Effects. You can do it with what's built into After Effects if you know a little bit of audio editing. Yeah, I think, um, wasn't Trapcode the one that has the uh, amplitude modulation and the frequency filtering? I, th I think it was. 
Was that built into trap code? Maybe, maybe yeah, because I've I've used it for music videos in the past, but I, I believe I had to pay for the plugin, and and I'm pretty sure it was trap code was the the trap code is right yeah that was the red giant plugin and and trap code you can set actually frequency designations and stuff like that what's really cool if you start getting kind of fancy with this you can actually set it up so that if you have like a small clip that's like say three seconds or something like that that you want to trigger every time an event happens you can set it up so that it scripts that and brings that to the timeline every time so if you're doing one of those things where like uh it's really cool right now to do music videos where you cut to just that instrument being played and another instrument being played and back and forth and like have a window within windows and stuff like that and using trap code in that manner really streamlines the process as opposed to trying to uh, grab each little clip and then drag it into the timeline and everything else so that's awesome this is pretty cool it's free go check it out it's gitmosh.io so if you're interested in just playing around with that there's some cool effects and the price of free is always nice the next up on the list here is a rather weird one, and we've talked about this, uh, I believe, uh, episode number 10 or 11, but uh, the, the, the Panasonic CM1 20 megapixel camera phone, uh, this is a crazy one inch 20 megapixel sensor crammed onto a phone that's you know got the regular specs uh it's got the latest uh, quad core processor it's got 16 megs of ram or 16 gigs of ram inside um it's you know it it's a phone whatever but the, the cool thing is is it's a, <laughs> it's a 28 megapixel or a 20 megapixel f28 lens uh with a 28 millimeter field of view and this thing is also capable of shooting 4k and it looks like it's using actually the same sensor that's available in the panasonic FC 1000. No word yet on price, but if you swing over to DP Review, they've got some real-world test shots up, and it looks like this thing can really snap off some great images. Devin, would you put a camera on your phone like this, some kind of crazy, out-of-control 1-megapixel, or I mean 20-megapixel 1-inch sensor? It, it is it is tempting, right? Because um, this is where I, you know, I think uh, things have been headed towards for a long time with phones being more used as point and shoot cameras even though that wasn't the intended purpose of a smartphone uh people just don't carry point and shoot anymore point and shoots are way better for the price and everything else because of the larger image sensor and better optics but the best camera you have is always the camera you have on hand so in this kind of situation i think it's the perfect marriage and i think it's where phones are eventually going to go the real question is here though is panasonic as a phone maker i don't think we're going to see uh anything updated other than the 4.4 KitKat android operating system on this uh but I suppose if you're a person who's not super big into your phones and you're not the kind of person who buys flagship phones, uh, but you are the kind of person who loves to take lots of photos and videos, uh, this seems like a super ideal solution for that person. The problem is, is that I don't think that there's anywhere you can buy it with a contract. So asking $1,000 outright for a phone that isn't a flagship phone, but is a point and shoot camera, but you'll probably replace it in two years for a better phone it seems like it's asking a lot, and I think that it's it's a necessary step forward, but I don't think a lot of people are going to buy it or going to fall in love with it. I think after a generation or two um, where we can bring the price down and get it on contract with a few providers and things like that, uh, as well as maybe Panasonic partnering 
with Samsung or another phone maker, I could see that going a lot further uh, than what they've got here. But this, I think, is a necessary step in that direction. And it's not, it's not a slouch. I mean, you're talking about it's quad core and it's 10 mega, uh, 1080p display, 4.7 inches, which is decent size for a phone. I know a lot of people like a phone like that, but the photos so far are nothing super impressive to look at. It looks about as good as a low-end point-and-shoot. And so that's why the price just doesn't seem justified to me. And so maybe I'm losing the point on it, but I think that this is a step in the right direction. It's just not the one to get if you want something like this. I think you give it a little bit, and I think things like this from different manufacturers like Sony, because Sony be in the perfect place to do something like this, uh, even though Sony's really bad at updating their phones as well. But the uh, Xperia, I think it's called, and a few of their other phone brands, they make really good hardware and really good phones for the price. They pair that with their camera department, and they're somebody who could dominate the space. Seeing Panasonic come at it, uh, I think they're just kind of like, oh, Android's free. We can use it. Let's try this out. And it's good that they are because if people show interest in this, we'll get more of this down the line. And I totally would. This isn't the one I'd buy, but I totally would get a phone that has a much better camera on it. Because at the end of the day, that's also what I use my phone a lot for, too. It's like calling and emailing, sure, but... Um, I'm not trying to, you know, do crazy stuff on my phone that some other people do where it's their entire workspace and they edit Microsoft office documents on it and stuff like that. But I do use it to take pictures everywhere. It's got built in GPS. <laughs> they actually work on Facebook. Microsoft office on their it. phone. I've been on the plane really? and there's a dude there with a 5.7 inch smartphone and he's got a Bluetooth keyboard and mouse hooked up there. And he's like, what? away at his Excel spreadsheet. And I'm like, dude bring a laptop man they make 10 inch laptops that serve that purpose a lot better but i i a few, i've seen a few people who do that it's it's a bizarre thing to see so it's not probably for people who love their phones and are power users of phones but more targeted towards photography people who also don't want to carry two devices on them at the same time so i i love it i just i wouldn't buy this one i'd wait another uh, generation or two before i look at buying them because still a thousand dollar msrp is a lot to ask for for a a phone that isn't quite the fastest and won't exactly last as long as, uh, you know, the Note series or something like that if you buy whatever the newest is right now. Honestly, I think that uh, even though they've been trying to advance the cameras on smartphones, this is probably not the way to go. I really like the idea of like the uh, the Olympus Air and some of these other four-thirds cameras that actually have interchangeable lenses where it's basically just the camera portion separated from your phone. Because the problem is with, uh, with the phone, if you want it to fit in your pocket, you're pretty limited on the options you have for lenses. And going to a one-inch sensor, you can see that this thing already has pretty much half of the front of the phone taken up by the lens mechanism itself you can't really get much bigger than that you're never going to get super zoom in this if you want to fit it in your pocket you're never going to get much in the way of of usable focal lengths i mean this is a fixed f um f28 28 millimeter and there isn't any you know options for zooming or anything like that so while i do like the idea of adding awesome cameras to your phone i'm kind of more torn with the idea of a really really small interchangeable lens camera that works with your phone so that it's kind of an accessory as opposed to your phone itself and that way you can still travel light travel really small but you have the option to throw on a nice fast 50 or a nice zoom lens if you want to and work with it that way or uh, the other option would be to put a four-thirds inch sensor on this and a lens cap 
And then when you want to take pictures, you actually <laughs> attach your lens to the front of your phone. Now, that's something that they could actually do in a really thin form factor. Imagine for a moment, if you will, the GH4, for example, was just shrunk down to where it was a phone screen and, you know, a button on top and that, and then that's it. And all you do is screw your lens in and start shooting. And then if you want to shoot tiny, you use a pancake. If you want to put it in your pocket, you take your lens off and put the lens cap on. Maybe that's the way to go. I don't know. You know what? That and That's a creative. That's a very interesting creative option. Uh, I'm not sure if that would be viable in the marketplace uh, just because it really affects the pocketability unless you're always jumping lenses off and on. But I do agree with you. One of those handheld Bluetooth cameras, they aren't perfect yet. Uh, but I think a combination of that will replace the point and shoot because you don't lose that camera when you upgrade your phone. And as I can imagine, in two years, this, fo uh, this phone slash camera is going to be outdated and you're going to be throwing out a decent camera for a better phone, um, which is why I think it needs to come down in price. And that's probably has more to do with Panasonic, their entry into the phone market than necessarily how much it costs to make. But um, it looks like next on the list here, we've got uh, the Canon XC10 is available for yes, pre-order. Are you thing. picking this thing up? Oh, no, no, this is not on my list at all, man. Okay, so for those of you not familiar, the Canon XC10 is basically kind of trying to fall in line with their uh, XF series of cameras, which are, uh, those were like two-thirds inch sensors. This has a one-inch sensor. It's able to shoot 4K. The zoom range on it isn't too bad. It's 8.9 to 89 millimeters, and that's basically 10x zoom. It's a f2.8 to 5.6 aperture, so you're not dealing with a nice fixed uh, aperture zoom lens here this thing is $2,500 and man for the price this doesn't really seem like it offers a whole heck of a lot and a one inch sensor you're not going to get incredibly awesome low light out of this guy it's sort of a camcorder but it's not really a camcorder it's sort of a stills camera but it doesn't take raw images it only takes jpeg so that's a little bit weird it's got a new kodak the mxf wrapper uh canon basically is shoving like a 305 megabit per second 4k signal into their mxf format and that's about it you know is, is there something i'm missing on this that just makes it really awesome it doesn't even have xlr input so you're still in the kind of dslr range of audio adapters in order to get good audio into this thing and you have cameras like the Panasonic FC1000, which is a 4K super zoom that basically offers up pretty much everything this does. A one-inch sensor doesn't have the Kodak, I guess, but still uh, better zoom range, uh, better everything really other than the, the price. I mean, I guess Canon wins on the highest price, you know, $2,500. <laughs> what? What do you think of this guy? Are, are you excited about this at all? I mean, I'm not. I I would I would like to see what it does uh, with that new codec, and that's that's part of it too. Is that anytime you bring in that new codec, I think that's a bit of a hard sell. Uh, but seeing um, but seeing three hundred and five megabits per second under four um, K uh, with H two six four whatever they got going on in there, uh, that tell that to me it sounds like it's going to be a great looking four K image. I don't know the specs on the canon super zoom i forget what that model number is that you just said um but the uh for me 305 megabits is probably what's required to get h264 to make a really nice copy of 4k i think 100 megabit works really well at 1080p but 100 megabit does not work well when you hit uh 4k i think that um 
And that's one of my complaints about the Panasonic GH4 is that it loses so much detail during motion. And when you're doing interviews and stuff like that, it's fine. It's great. It looks fantastic. But when you start to do a lot more motion, you lose that beautiful detail that the camera's capable of unless you go to external recording. Something like this makes me think that this could shoot a lot better 4K. So I'm interested to see, well, how good does it look? I know it won't do the super low light, but this almost seems like Canon's answer to all the Blackmagic stuff, the Blackmagic pocket camera and uh, the new little Blackmagic cameras they're coming out with, the little mini studio cameras and stuff like that, which is like, hey, stick this up in a corner. Nobody touches it. It's just a camera that's always there. This may be really good for a sector where um, maybe an education or something like that, where you set up a camera in the back of the room and it's just you, you have it plugged into power the entire time and the HDMI output goes somewhere else for iMag or something. So I see a few uses here and there. I see that it's not a DSLR and I appreciate that because, you know, using a DSLR is one of those you know, uh, cameras you set up and nobody touches for the event. Uh, you know, they, they usually have... What about though, like the uh, the Sony offering? Because Sony's got the, uh, the 10 series. Uh, I believe that's the RX10 or RC... Dang it, there's too many letter combination numbers. But uh, <laughs> their 10 and their 100 series are both capable of shooting to 1080p. They're really super sharp. Uh, the uh, 10, I believe, has a 200 to 28 millimeter f2.8 zoom lens on it. And mm -hmm. it's really nice. Plus, it has that XLR audio adapter. You can get the XLR adapter for about 700 bucks and the camera itself for about eight. 850 or 900 so those two together now you have a full-fledged video camera that also shoots really decent 20 megapixel stills and it has a much better zoom range than the xc10 uh this is gonna get confusing uh but uh <laughs> that that's the price is it's like half the price and you get all these extra features and i'm looking now i, I understand the kodak bit but uh you know at 1080p it's not so bad and still that's what a lot of people are going to end up using this for and yeah, i'm looking at the uh, panasonic fc 1000 now and that one is a 25 to 400 millimeter f2.8 to f4 35 millimeter equivalent zoom range and that guy's sitting at 897 and it's got the flip out screen it's got uh, the digital viewfinder it's got 4k recording internally and yes it's not uh 305 megabits per second i believe it's these 100 megabit per second kodak mm -hmm. but right. it also is capable of doing 1080p at uh looks like 200 megs so you know it's got enough oomph under the hood that you just you know, if you're shooting action, you're right. you shoot at 1080p. But Canon doesn't have a small camera that shoots 4K yet. Besides like the 1DC and there's all kinds of problems with trying to use that as a proper video camera. Um, so besides the C300, which is a much larger camera, I think this is Canon just trying to put out a 4K cheaper camera uh, with the form factor that a lot of people seem to be interested in, which is that DSLR super small size form factor. So no, I don't think it's a winner in any one checklist. I think that Canon is just doing it to round out because they don't have anything in that market space that's trying to compete against anybody. Everyone else, Sony and Panasonic, you're right. They're like you said, they're completely in this market space and they probably have the things that people actually want. But here, I think that Canon is just like, hey, we need a 4K camera that's really small. My guess is because, um, you know, the Mark III didn't come with 4K, uh, except yeah. with hacking. And um, chances are the Mark IV probably will, but the Mark IV is not scheduled to be anywhere anytime that anyone knows about, except for the people like Canon. So 
this could be something that they're just holding over for a year, maybe a year and a half until that uh, Mark IV comes out. That'll probably have 4K. But as I've heard of a lot of people who talk to Canon, uh, it seems like they're not so interested in having the 5D continue on to be a video camera, especially since since the Mark III. There's been so many cameras have been outdoing it for a better price in terms of video. Of course, as a stills camera for action and everything else, it's a brilliant camera. But in the video department, I feel like they, they want to stop trying to force their 5D to be a video camera, and they want to pull back and just focus on it being a photography camera uh, like the 1DC. And so this could just be their excuse for being like, well, if you want a super small 4K camera, it's over here. Don't Stop bothering us about the 5D and why the 5D doesn't have 4K. What do you think about the ergonomics on this thing? I know we've kind of beat the specs to death here. Um, this is kind of a weird camera as far as specs goes, but what do you think about this? Is a, It's basically a small kind of petite version of a C100. It's got this... I consider it kind of dumb handle <laughs> twisty thing on the side. And this guy is small enough now that it doesn't really have a lot to hold on to. Uh, do you think this is going to be comfortable to run around with and shoot with all day? I, I mean, how do you hold it exactly? You know, you have to like do this sort of box thing with your hands or something in order to, you know, get it stable or whatever. I imagine you shoot it like you shoot most DSLRs where you got one hand on the grip and one hand around the lens, but this is a rotating grip too. Yeah, so well, I guess that's true, but this yeah. is supposed to be a video camera, not a, uh, <laughs> not a stills camera. So then why would they adopt the sort of ergonomics of a, a DSLR? No, there's no uh, video camera that's this size that has good ergonomics because it's just, it's this size. Everything that has great uh, feel and usability to it out on the field is like your FS7 and other, you know, mid-range cameras. Compare this to the, say, the ergonomics of um, a PD-150 or a DVX-100B. Both of those cameras, you held on in front of you, your armor got tired, and the only difference between this and that is that those ones didn't have a rotating handle. This one does. So, well, it, it may not have a, a strap around the handle or something like that to help you hold it. I go, ah, it's about as good as most of the cameras are in this place where they're not meant to be mounted to your body. You just kind of hold them. And if the grip can move, then so much the better. Uh, but I don't see that as a downside at all because it's just the size of it is small and that's how all small cameras are. At least I haven't had any good experiences with any cameras this size holding them for long periods of time. So I just don't expect a lot from this market. Well, I guess the the part of where I was going with that is that the joy of the C100 for a lot of people is actually that the buttons are easy to get to. You have the grip thing that's twisty. I'm not a big fan of that, but the camera itself kind of, you can kind of sort of hold it like a mm -hmm. real video camera. And this, you know, is supposed to be kind of that marriage, the lower price uh, C100 sort of style with 4K shooting. And it looks as though like the button layout and the control interface and stuff isn't quite as smooth as I would expect for something that's sort of angled directly at video shooting. Uh, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I'll have to get my hands on this and play around with it. But it's still, to me, looking at all of the product shots of this, it looks like the setup is more DSLR-esque as opposed to video camera-esque. And yes, I agree. Like, uh, you know, even the Ursa Mini, that one's going to be a camera where you're going to have to have some kind of rigging or something like that to make it super comfortable for shooting all day. But that's sort of what that camera is designed for. This is like Canon saying, hey, we made you a video camera. Look at this, you know, and then they're like, wait a minute. We didn't really make you a video camera. We just like cobbled together some DSLR parts and then gave you this thing with a camera inside of it. Good luck, guys. You know, and then the price, too. I don't know. 
I, I'll tell you, I'll tell I'll you one thing. The one thing that XC10 has that I don't think any other Canon camera has in terms of video is a really good EVF. Because at this price point, because the C100 <laughs> has a piece of crap EVF. Oh, and... man, that thing is so hard to use because it's like stuck on there and you have to stick <laughs> your face up against it. Oh, I hate and, that. And all the DSLRs, uh, of course, you can't use their EVF because they're properly mirrored. They aren't like Panasonic or Sony where they're electronic viewfinders. So you consider the fact that when I look at this thing and I see the EVF sticking so far back, it tells me that me holding up to use it will actually be pretty comfortable if I'm using that eye cup and I'm holding it up against my body. So wait till you hold on to one. You might be a little surprised by how comfortable it is to use for its size. Yeah, and I've been scolded in the past for not uh, liking uh, viewfinders. You know, I normally just use a <laughs> flip-out screen. Maybe it's just because of the time I started working with cameras that I enjoy that sort of style better, but uh, uh, whatever. Anyway, the uh, the Canon XC10 is available for pre-order. It's $2,500. If you are looking for a video camera and a non-interchangeable lens, you might want to compare this to Sony's RX10 as well as Panasonic's FC1000. All of those are interesting offerings at various price ranges. Moving on down the line to higher price ranges is the new Sony 24 to 70 millimeter f2.8 and 16 to 35 millimeter f2.8 Zeiss lens. These are both A mount, and it seems as though Sony is still kicking out a ton of A mount lenses, but they haven't really been refreshing their A mount camera line. Instead, they've been focusing more on the E mount cameras. These guys are expensive. Uh, Looks like in the two thousand to twenty four hundred dollar range uh, for these two lenses, respectively. Uh, they're not exactly affordable glass, and this is replacing the older original Sony twenty four to seventy f two eight, which is now currently at about eighteen hundred dollars, and I suspect will drop down in price a little bit further. Doesn't this seem a little expensive for what they're offering, especially when you have off branded versions like the Tamron twenty four to seventy for? Uh, what, twelve or fourteen hundred dollars? Uh, I'd say no, because it has the word Zeiss on it. So, <laughs> yeah, that's true. As soon as you put Carl <laughs> Zeiss on any of these, yeah. it goes up like one thousand dollars in price. They bought that name just so they could charge more. Um, the that being said, uh, when you talk about Tamron and Sigma and things like that, uh, I just saw um a friend of mine C three hundred. He had a Sigma on a big Z Sigma Zoom or um. I think it was like a 2.8 zoom or something like that. And sure enough, he dropped it and the lens popped right off of the mount because it's plastic on the inside. The mount's metal, but the part of that that metal part connects with the rest of the glass is plastic. So part of that too is you are paying for build quality in these um, uh, first brand. Well, lenses what like about the... What about the Canon 24 to 70 Mark II? The original 24 to 70 was a metal tank, but the more expensive, like almost $2,000 uh, 24 to 70 Mark II is composite and fiber and plastic with a metal mount, just like that Sigma you were just complaining about. Yeah, but see, but I think that... Uh, and the let me name another one, man. You got the <laughs> Canon 35 millimeter... Um, yeah, 35mm f1.4. That one is also a plastic uh, red ring, which, I mean, I have a ton of <laughs> L-glass from Canon, and you go through, and it's like kind of, normally the mark of a good lens is you can flick it, and it, it's got that nice metal clink to it, but then <laughs> you're flicking your L lenses, and you find, oh, wait a minute, the 35mm is actually a piece of plastic with a metal mount as well. 
I don't know if they're as durable or not as durable as some of the Sigma and Tamron offerings. I've also heard stories of the Tamron 2470 F2.8. The elements in some of the portion of the moving parts in the lens are glued in. Mm. And people exposing them to high temperatures and then low temperatures and high temperatures again have experienced times where that element just falls out. <laughs> and then you can yeah. send it into the service center, I guess, and they not, can like glue it back in. But yeah, so I know it's I'm not, not defending her, right? But right. everybody's making plastic they these days. It seems like, yeah. well, weight weight's more and more of a concern. I think part of that too is with so. Um, with, I think, uh, fewer and fewer photographers, because that's what most of these lenses are for, even though we like them for video. Um, I notice less and less photographers in the field. And so I notice more and more photographers actually flying to their gigs than necessarily just working locally, uh, because uh, there seems to be a lot fewer jobs for photographers these days, because everyone thinks, hey, if I got a point and shoot, I don't need a photographer. So in this situation, I think that um, you're right. It, it's extremely pricey, and it's made for just those people who are still using a Sony A-series. They'll probably come out with more A-series, even though they haven't yet. And the A-mounts are adaptable to the E-mounts because they've got that longer flange distance. So, But you're right. It seems weird to announce this without it coming after a camera. You know, Canon is like, hey, we got a new... 1DC or whatever that they got coming out, or hey, we've got a new C300 Mark II. Hey, here's a bunch of new lenses to go with it too. Uh, but in this case, you're right. Sony hasn't really done a whole lot with the A mount as of late. I they didn't say anything at NAB though. I figure it'd be more of a photographer. As far as I know, isn't the A99 the last in the series so far for that's the last uh, one A mount bodies? Yeah, yeah, and so right now the A7 series, the E-mount versions have been super popular and they've been making a ton of bodies but not a ton of lenses for them. Uh, there's been a few like F4s popping up here and there and like the 55mm F1.8. That's, I know it's, it's still a nice prime and don't get me wrong, I've used it, yeah. I like it, but it's F1.8. I mean, man, yeah. come on, give me some like F1.4 or some F1.2. I don't know, <laughs> I just feel like if I'm buying high-level glass, I want a, a bigger aperture to deal with. And as far as the adapter goes, I've got it right. I've got one of them right here. This one's the one with that translucent mirror inside of it, and it, it works pretty well. Um, it's a little bit noisy. Uh, it uses a screw drive system like the old Minolta lenses, so it's not the perfect solution. Plus, you know, the cool thing about the A7S and the A7 series in general is that it's super skinny. I mean, look at how sleek this is. But then you add this to it, and now it's just as clunky and as thick as any regular DSLR. So then you kind of lose that advantage of, hey, mm -hmm. now I can have stuff that's like low profile and doesn't take up as much space. And when you were talking about plastic, what is this? A nice plastic mount here <laughs> with just a piece of metal in there. So you want on a point of failure yeah. man the body's all metal everything else is all metal and then you've got this plastic thingamajig in the middle that uh is possibly going to break off i don't know it's frustrating um as far as these other off brands go one other lens that i haven't talked about much and i kind of wanted to mention here have you seen or messed around with or had a chance to play with the tamaron uh, 16 to or excuse me, 15 to 35 millimeter F2.8. That one's kind of on my radar because it has uh, vibration control, which is, you know, Tamron's flavor of IS. Have you, have you seen any of that? Have you messed around with it or had a chance to touch it? I haven't had a chance to touch it. Does it come in all the usual mounts? Yes, it does. Um, 
I I almost pulled the trigger on one, but I already own the Canon 17 to 35 millimeter f2.8 original wide angle and the 16 to 35 millimeter f2.8. So I don't really need it, but it's kind of cool that they're offering uh, vibration control in something that reasonably priced. I believe the lens is about mm-hmm. $1,400 and $1,300 if you find it on sale. So if anybody's used that, report it back. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Uh, moving on to other new releases here. If you've forgotten about Magic Lantern, uh, you can remember again. It looks like they are <laughs> releasing a version of Magic Lantern for the Canon 70D. If you're familiar with the 70D, originally uh, there were certain serial number models that did not support Magic Lantern and certain that did. Uh, it was based on some chip that they were using on the audio processing or what have you. It uh, looks like they've gotten that all sorted out, and now uh, Magic Lantern is working on the 70D. So if you have one of those, uh, that's an option to go with. I wanted to kind of report back, though, on the 6D. I was trying to get Magic Lantern to work on that, and it turns out that uh, there's a split or a fork in the Magic Lantern teams, and one of them is called Tragic Lantern, and the other one is Magic Lantern. (laughs) Apparently, the people that were working on the 6D build did not get along with the rest of the group, and they kind of split off and did their own thing. So if you are looking for updates on the 6D, they're kind of all over the place, and you kind of have to cobble them together. Uh, There are nightly builds available for most of these firmwares, so if you're looking to try some of the most cutting-edge features or whatever, you can go check those out. But otherwise, uh, you know, Magic Lantern, it's still going. It's nice that they're still developing stuff and not just for the main cameras. I know you have, what, one Canon camera left in your collection? Yeah, yeah. I've got a T2i that's still running Magic Lantern. Um, That's nice as just a backup camera just to have around because, you know, it doesn't go for much money these days. But, um, yeah, it's exciting to see the 70D get in there with uh, some raw video and some of the other features that they've got going on. And it's still amazing that people are just hacking this and doing this for free because they're trying to uh, get more out of their cameras. I think that's the most impressive part. I'm still confused, though, by seeing how much, how all the features and stability that's coming out of it that I'm confused on why Canon isn't pursuing some of these areas themselves. Uh just because it does seem stable. Like, while people warn you all about bricking cameras and everything else, I have yet to see it happen. And I've yet to really hear of it happen, except for maybe one or two isolated cases. And so I, I think to myself, I'm like, it doesn't sound like they're overdriving the processor. I've seen people use this in high heat environments, and it's not like the you know camera's crashing on them. So from my experience, I go, why is it that Canon isn't also like trying to get back in the spotlight and be like, hey, look, it may not be all the features or whatever that they, but they go, Hey, look, we added this feature that gives you, you know, um, allows you to turn off auto gain control or whatever else. Um, other problems you have with, uh, you know, lacking features, uh, raw video and stuff like that. I could kind of understand because that's a nightmare to sit there and try to turn that into video. So I wouldn't expect them to have anything like that, but you know, uh, allowing different frame rate adjustments and different or uh, shutter angle adjustments and stuff like that. I don't know. Well, Karen, I think like, some oh, of it, some of it's actually from their leadership format. So if you're not familiar with the way Canon set up, there's Canon USA and then there's Canon Japan. And even though Canon USA like sells stuff and does uh, a bunch of marketing and everything mm-hmm. else, it's really Canon Japan that does all of the uh, choice and direction for products and so on. And 
they have kind of a weird and different mentality over the United States on what to add and like how to cowboy up for some of this stuff. And they really kind of want to lock down their broadcast section and their regular photography section. And they don't want those two to come together. And if you talk to any of the reps in the United States, they'll tell you like, man, we wish they would do this. They wish they would add this feature. We wish they'd give us, you know, all these other things that are being done by these hackers, you know, in different communities. And it, it works. Obviously, they work on these cameras. Well, why won't those guys do that? Well, it's because the Americans are screaming for it. And the Japanese are like, ah, eh, we don't think people need that. They don't need that out of our cameras. You know, <laughs> it's a <laughs> completely different culture and mentality. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. they still have this sort of like hold on to their different sections and subsections sort of mentality going on. And it, even Panasonic, um, the latest version of the new firmware for the GH4, the 2.2 revision doesn't come with vlog. And the rumor is that the reason it doesn't have vlog is because the broadcast department told them they couldn't do it because they didn't want the GH4 to eat into their ENG camera sales and why well it's capable of doing that but they can sell those cameras for like six grand a piece or they can sell yeah. that one for uh, 14 or 1500 which one has the higher margin you know and if you think about what's inside of some of their bigger cameras they're doing the same thing as they did with the 100 series what was it the f fz 100 or fs 100 the mm -hmm. previous micro four thirds video camera that guy had the exact same sensor as the gh2 and they basically mm -hmm. just plucked the sensor out of there, put it in there, added a few audio circuits and so on from some of their bigger cameras, and bam. Now they have maybe five or $600 more in parts in this thing, and they can sell it for five or six times as much as they sell the little point-and-shoot camera. So maybe from a business standpoint, there's more to it than we as simple peons <laughs> buying the cameras. Simple consumers. You know, yeah. but... Uh, but maybe there's a maybe they're just jerks too. I don't know. I was I was well and I was disappointed. I was hoping that after everything settled down and everyone stopped talking about it, like this year at NAB, Panasonic would release the AF two hundred, like with four K capabilities, blow everyone away. Uh, but that didn't happen, and it probably never will. But in the back of my head, well, I was kind of like, ah, that'd be nice, you know, to have um something like that with interchangeable lenses, but you still got your vector scopes, your zebras and everything else you look for in a professional camera with a top handle. I mean, something to really combat the uh, C300 uh, out of Panasonic would be great. But I mean, you're right. They're but if you think about it right now, though, they're kind yeah. of like, there's no reason to go that way because Blackmagic just released the Ursa Mini, which is a 4.3 format you know, camera. It takes some micro four thirds lenses. It has everything you need inside of it. Plus you have JVC's offer. I believe isn't yeah. that capable of 4K that and so I mean that yes. one's basically that thing as well and both of those are uh, sub four thousand dollars the Ursa Mini is what I think twenty five hundred or twenty four hundred for the Micro Four Thirds format version and mm -hmm. the uh, JVC I think they dropped the price again I think it's down to thirty five hundred dollars it started out I think listing at like uh, forty five hundred and they've just been moving the price down and down to make it really competitive. So if Panasonic were to actually do that <laughs> with that sort of thing, who are they going to, you know, they're behind the curve on their own format, you know, it, they're not going to be able to really win that much market share. I think that's why, and I don't have it in this particular set of show notes, but uh, I was looking at their ENG camera, which is a $5,000 4K camera that is basically just a GH4 with a fixed focal length lens on it. You know, so then mm -hmm. you don't have any interchangeable lens and you just have a camera that's good for, 
you know, filming right. news broadcasts and stuff like that. Yeah. And so it's, of course there's, there's marketing and people still have, you know, money and factories turning other things out and they need to make sure that they make money back on those. Uh, you're right. That space is very competitive with both the URSA and JVC, which let's be honest, JVC needed a splash like that because most people had forgotten about them. Uh, you know, it's starting with the 5D Mark II and then moving all the way on to, uh, you know, Blackmagic and Blackmagic 4K cameras. Uh, people forgot JVC was even around. So it's exciting to... Um, I'm hoping JVC 2 comes out with some more stuff, but um, you're right. Panasonic is is late to that game if they decide that they want to play in that marketplace. And to be honest, I keep seeing sales. I keep seeing people holding GH4s, and I think that they're just making money hand over fist with a GH4. And so hopefully that'll turn into you know research and design for a bigger, better project down the line. But I don't think they're in any hurry right now uh, they've already dropped the price of the GH4 way down. It costs what a GH3 was brand new. Went from what two grand now down to like thirteen, twelve hundred. Sometimes I see it online for eleven hundred. Yeah, I so, think you can get it on sale for twelve hundred dollars. So it's a really decent price. And if you look on eBay, a lot of times you can find it used or um, almost new, like recertified or whatever, for about a thousand dollars. The GH4 is really a camera yeah. that's been sticking and i mean honestly my entire bag i have an entire bag of micro four third stuff now that i use on a regular basis just because i like it that much i've actually considered buying a second gh4 multiple times uh that may be pushed back now that i have the unfortunate side effects of taxes but uh <laughs> yeah it, it's nice i mean it's a great camera it's a great system uh video is good the whole flip out screen thing i'm finding myself falling in love with that sort of thing and mm -hmm. the electronic viewfinder is really good i think maybe that's why we didn't see a gh5 this year or any major upheavals in the micro four thirds format is because they're they uh, probably going to be able to con yeah exactly they're probably going to continue on on this run for uh three years or two years pull like a 5d mark ii and just you know roll into the fourth <laughs> before they release something new you know yeah, well, I mean, last year when it dropped, I mean, you really think about it. They came out with an incredible camera at an incredible price that no one else could touch. And now you're right. Things like the Ursa Mini are starting to approach that price point. You know, the EF version coming in at three grand and stuff like that. So, of course, they bring down their prices to properly compete with that. But overall, it's still a great camera and I still see people using it. And if they continue to do these little updates and try to help it out, I could see it having a much longer uh, shelf life uh, than even the Mark II did because out of the box, it comes with so much, uh, so much more inability uh, compared to what we were originally hassling with with the Mark II. So. Now, one other thing I'd like to mention for those of you looking for a super affordable uh, video camera real video camera and i know there's a ton of love for the c100 if you swing on to ebay right now and you look around the trending price for the original c100 is about three thousand dollars so you can buy that entire setup and start using your canon lenses today and heck there's one for with a buy it now price of three thousand dollars or best offer that even comes with one of the zacuto z finders as well as a, a light attachment and a few other accessories i mean that's a really attractive option if you just want a video camera and you're not really looking for stills. That thing keeps falling in price. I wouldn't be surprised if in another six months or so, once these cameras start hitting the hitting the ground for sales, that this drops to $2,500 or maybe $2,000 for the original C100. Absolutely. Devin, if it gets to $2,000, would you buy <laughs> a C100? Uh, 
probably not because that's still not enough camera for me. I'd still be eyeing the C300 the entire time because um, of the low light capabilities and everything else. Though uh, I definitely know that I would probably buy on discounted sale or use because I've got a buddy who has a C300 Mark One that he probably bought about four or five months ago that was badly burned by the Mark II coming out and the drastic price drop in the C300 Mark One. So I definitely would be looking at uh, last gen, but I don't know, even for two grand, that is an incredible price for having, you know, the ability to add those XLR inputs and other things are really important for running gun shooting, but it's still not the perfect camera for me. I'd probably still spend a few more grand getting a C300 if I was to go that route. Otherwise, I don't know. I'd probably look at the, um, the Ursa instead of uh, a C100. Man, what is the C three hundred down to now? I'm I've got to find that really quick. I know the it was at one point what thirteen thousand dollars. Now I I want to say like six thousand or oh yeah sixty five hundred dollars is um, make yep. an offer right now on eBay. I'm seeing some six thousand dollars. Some oh man yeah six thousand flat with zero bids. Holy cow! Have the mighty fallen? That is a huge <laughs> drop off compared to what it was. Yeah, so I guess if you want right. To, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no crap. Thank goodness. I only lost like a couple hundred bucks on that and I was able to use it quite a lot. So it, it did okay as far as the profit margins go, but man, what a mess. The, um, C300 Mark II, I think is $15,000. So if Canon does anything next year that undercuts that, maybe that's going to fall as well. What a crazy market right now for <laughs> buying for gear. Canon Wouldn't security? it suck if you... Yeah, exactly. You you go pick up a Canon camera like a C100 as an investment, and what last year or the year before it was five thousand dollars. Now you turn around and it's only worth three thousand dollars, or you spend you know fifteen thousand dollars and you get the uh, C300, and now it's down to six thousand dollars. That is a huge, huge fall off. Oh man, you'd better be making money on these cameras, or they are not even worth having. You might as well just rent <laughs> for those sorts of fall offs. Yeah, but oh. what hasn't dropped in price is those uh, Canon Cine glass. You want to make an investment? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> spend spend a few mortgages buying a set of that, <laughs> and it'll still be the same price by the time you die. Yeah, but yeah, glass is always a good investment. Yeah. Um, one more lens, uh, and that was a good segue that I completely dropped here. Um, <laughs> we've got one more thing on the list here, and this is the uh, uh, Samyung uh, or. Uh, 100 millimeter f2.8 micro lens. Uh, this macro lens is about 549 new. It's a 1 1 macro. Uh, it has a focal distance of up to 12 inches. So you can get really close to your objects. And it comes in the usual flavors Sony, Canon, Nikon, and so on. Uh, do you do any macro photography at all or macro filmmaking? You know what? It's, it's been on my list. It's one of those things I'd like to do for fun. Uh, with insects specifically, I've got a huge fascination with insects. I love to do a little bit of macro photography with that. I just haven't had uh, much of a decent lens, you know, so I've been kind of suffering away with 100 millimeters or 85 millimeters trying to get them into a macro mode because um, macro lenses tend to be pretty pricey. But this one coming in at 550 at 2.8 seems really attractive and is something that I'd start to consider uh, for a macro lens because most of the time it's just it's one of those specialty lenses that I could rarely ever justify spending a ton of money on 
uh, because you're you're going to use it so you know so few times compared to your five your fifty millimeter or your eighty five or something like that. But in this case, at this price, um, I, of course, I'd like to see one in a cine with you know geared rings because that's how I roll. Uh, but in this case. <laughs> But in this case, you know what? It's um, uh, for someone like me who doesn't have necessarily a hundred millimeter uh, already. This comes as a very attractive offer, and it's it's one of those things that if you do have one of these lenses and you can find an excuse to use it on one of your shoots, say for like a commercial or something like that, it adds a certain amount of production value because not a lot of people do have these lenses and can get those kind of shots, whether it's a macro shot of uh, some detail on the product, like a texture or something like that. There's some really cool stuff you can do with like a car steering wheels and things like that, that just kind of give it that little bit of edge that helps you to stand out from other people in the marketplace. So uh, at, at 550, it falls into that price of I'm willing to buy a lens because uh, I'm not like you where I've got a couple thousand to go get a bunch of uh, lenses that somebody's put a, a red mark around. So. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Hey, now, just a, a quick update, though. The Canon version of this, the Canon sells the 100mm f2.8, and they also have the 100mm f2.8 L-series lens. The non-L-series is the same price as the Samyung, and it is autofocus. So if you're just wanting to do photography with this, that might be the better way to go. Uh, as you mentioned, maybe having some gears on this for filmmakers. What I've been doing, actually, when I do need some pseudo-macro stuff is the uh, uh, one or what is it, the 35 millimeter to 100 millimeter f2.8 Panasonic lens has a really decent focal distance. I, I believe it's like a foot and some change. So oh, if you really? go to, yeah, if you go to the, the uh, 100 side of things and you get up close to like flower or something like that, you can actually just about fill the entire frame with a 16 megapixel shot and then, you know, kind of zoom in a little bit and you almost have a like kind of poor boys, you know, macro. And that actually works the same with um, uh, 4k shooting. So if you if, like, I wanted the shot uh, for like a creepy scene where I wanted just the guy's eye to fill up the entire frame. So I shot at 4k with the uh, uh, at 100 millimeters with the uh, GH4 mm -hmm. and I was able to crop in, to 1080p and completely fill the entire frame with his eye without having to do any enlargement or anything. And that's kind of like, it's, I know it's not a true macro cause you're not doing a one-to-one, -one, but it's the same sort of look that you would want to yeah. get out of a macro lens. And that's it's still sexy. Yeah, it is super sexy. And I also have that uh, 300 millimeter, uh, the, what is it? 80 to 300 millimeter F two eight that yeah. I picked up and I haven't done any of that yet, but for like, <laughs> if you want to get, you want to take someone's nose, for example, and fill up an entire frame, you <laughs> can, you can focus on something from about three feet away. And at 300 millimeters on a crop sensor camera like that, you're, you know, that's a two X magnification. So bam, now you've got like, whew, yeah, it's, it's freaking sweet. <laughs> The, I needed the I need to go back awesome and look at those panty lenses. Yeah. Those panty lenses. Yeah. I, I used them once, but I need to start looking at buying them because they seem really great lenses for the price. Yeah, they're definitely worth checking out. Um, the other thing to note is uh, if you look on eBay, a lot of people are getting them in deal packages where they come with that 1.4x uh, adapter. So you can attach that and then get even more reach out of that lens. I think it it's like a 500 or 600 equivalent when it's uh, fully zoomed in. I, 
I'd have to go look at the math. I'm probably saying that incorrectly. I think it's actually a 35 to 70. Is it a 35 to 150? Is that what the actual native focal length is for the lens? Uh, and then it's a 1.4x? I believe so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so there's the actual numbers. D disregard that 600 stuff. That's not true. <laughs> um, so that would make it, what, a 300 on the on the reach, and then 1.4 times 300. So that would give you, what, about 450-ish, uh, 440-ish focal length? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, that that's... Again, really, uh, yeah, the Panasonic you has that when you're shooting video, you can go to the crop 1080p. Exactly, or you can just shoot in 4K and then punch in on your 4K True, image yeah. to 1080p. I, that's what I've kind of been finding is the easier workflow for me. Um, honestly, there's a setting, and I scripted it in Premiere, and this is just kind of a side note. Uh, your 4K image, to get it down to fill a, a 1080p screen, is 50%. So if you just do your scaling, you script your scaling on all of your clips ahead of time to go through and scale everything to 50%, it will go through and batch scale everything and then you can just drop it right into your timeline. You don't have to worry about messing around with adjusting and whatever. And then if you want to get closer, then you can enlarge to 100% or 75% or whatever and move it around as you see fit. That's kind of the fast way to do it. You know, That's handy to know. The, it's a 100 megabit Kodak for the uh, 4K mm -hmm. format on the GH4. And scaling down, you know, there's some people that say that's the way to go because scaling down makes it sharper or whatever. I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't really done enough side-by-side -side comparisons to, to care or even worry about it. But yeah. um, if, you can, if you can do it that way, then it's not much more of a data hog than shooting on like a 5D uh, Mark III in regular 1080p mode. Uh, your Kodak's only double the size so you're not dealing with huge giant masses of data to deal with and as long as you have a decent cpu and a decent graphics card uh, 4k you can throw it at, at it all day long and you're okay i mean i'm a little excessive here i've got a titan um nvidia titan in my my desktop with like, like a, a graphics card yeah <laughs> yeah well, I think it might be more than $400 i don't know um but uh, i've also got the uh, 4790 but you know even uh, i5 uh, CPU, uh, maybe the 4750, I think, is what the i5 model is labeled at. Uh, those guys can still cut through 4K footage with a good GPU pretty easily. And, I mean, go look at the R9-290X. You can pick those up now for, what, 300 bucks or 250 yeah. bucks. That's super affordable. And then, you know, you have all the stuff in 4K. If you ever want to go back in the future and release a 4K version of your stuff, you've captured everything in 4K, you've done your cropping and whatever, you might have to make some creative sacrifices because now you don't have the ability to punch in like you did at 1080p, but you at least have all of your capture stuff in 4K if you want to do something yeah. with it down the road. Uh, that's kind of what I've been doing as a rule of thumb with the GH4 is just everything is 4K now. I started out like, oh, I'm going to use this super high data rate Kodak for 1080p. It really... You know, honestly, I didn't find enough of a value in that for me to move whole hog into that format. But 4K, hey, it's pretty nice. And, you know, if I want to do some pan and scan stuff or some add some motion or I even I wanted a, a shot where it was kind of shaky cam. And so I automated it in After Effects with just some wiggle, you know, wiggle notations yeah. and a little bit of math. And now, sure. like, I have shaky cam when I didn't even want or You know, I didn't shoot shaky cam. I just shot it stable. And it, 
it saves a little bit more of the clarity and gives you a little bit less of the gross like jello cam effect that you would normally get because the camera was locked down and you have yeah. those options with 4k whereas you don't really have that with uh, 10 i mean i shouldn't say that you can well, punch that- into 1080p as well and i've <laughs> done that before too uh, it's not the best way to go but you can you can generally get away with what i would say for me acceptable limits is probably 70 percent punch in on 1080p Devin, do you have a rule of thumb that you like to abide by when you're uh, scaling 1080p up uh 1080p yeah i to be honest i usually don't go past 15 percent um a 15 percent increase i don't go past 115 percent of scaling on a 1080p footage uh because no matter how good it is i mean even when i do that i'll add a bit of sharpening too just to try to cheat it a little bit uh, but the four, the four K for me, I think that the biggest selling point for a lot of people who are working as videographers is that when you have an interview, you just shoot a medium shot and you got a close up in the same shot, uh, which helps you to intercut that footage. Now, that may not. That's even be a little necessary. weird, though. Let me tell you. Okay, so <laughs> I thought I could do that and get away with it. So I just yeah. brought one camera and shot an interview, and uh-huh. I did the punch in, punch out, punch in, punch out again, and it worked. But because you're not cutting from like one, you know, angle. the sort of, yeah, exactly. You're, it's the exact same straight on angle. It looks a little weird and it's sort of off-putting. And then because the camera is, you know, it's the exact same shot. So when you cut in, there is no like little bit of a jump like you'd normally get when you have two cameras where it's sort of a change and not quite in sync. And maybe you moved mm-hmm. where he starts his word over just a little bit when you changed and cut this is perfect on every time. So it almost becomes like sort of robotic and creepy when you do a lot of that. And now I didn't think about it till I shot that I filmed it. And then I started watching some of these uh, documentaries where they're mm-hmm. just doing interviews the whole time. And you, as soon as you see it, it just disturbs you. You're like, well, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. oh, that's what he's doing. He just shot in 4k. He's going wide, medium, close up, wide, medium, close up. And like, sometimes, sometimes they're not even very creative about it. That's just like, they do it in steps every time. And then like, yeah. come back and then do, 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 come back. Like, what? <laughs> ah, hey, well, that, and that comes down, that comes down to editing, but 4k does give you that option to get a really clean close up shot. I'm not saying that it removes the need for B roll or anything else in your edit. I'm just saying that provides a different shot with the same amount of clarity. And I think that that's a selling point in of itself. And while other people uh, have poo-pooed the 4K, um, internal 4K because of the bit rate and stuff like that, I know I've said that the bit rate is low for action and stuff. When it comes to being a videographer, 100 megabit is easy to digest. Almost any computer can digest it. Now, if you're doing color or blur or other things like that, there's a lot more pixels. Not every computer can keep up with that. But before people who would work with 4K, you're talking about like red cards and crap and stuff that requires huge I.O. This 4K, you could edit off of a mechanical drive. You do not need anything crazy in your computer in order to read the data. Um, just depending on what kind of color you do, you may need a better graphics card or CPU to kind of keep up with it. But even then, that's marginal. And I kind of find that to be perfect. If you're shooting a lot of web stuff and you're shooting a lot of videography, weddings, stuff like that, uh, the 4K is going to give you a lot more options. And it's easy to work on because it's already in a very tiny format. And decoding H.264 4K doesn't take that much work because most processors and most video cards have H.264 decoding built in. So it's not even like it's hammering your system that hard when you want to watch 4K. So it makes it, it's kind of this, Panasonic found this brilliant little like gray area that nobody really wanted to touch because people are like, oh, 4K should be like, 
the best quality you can possibly get. That's people who want 4K. So we need to go raw or, you know, ProRes at least, some kind of uncompressed codec. And Panasonic goes, well, we can't fit that into our camera and we're appealing to the lower consumer market. But then at the same time, that also helps people who aren't, you know, DSLR film noob and have gigantic quad Xeon rigs. Hey, now, whoa, gigs whoa. of RAM. <laughs> I, know, okay, it, uh, on a side note, guys. person at it. <laughs> This guy here, um, I've been suffering from huge computer problems right now. It, for those of you who are watching this in video, and I'll just tell you, I'm, I am basically on a very tiny Ultrabook right now because <laughs> my desktop, so we've been having all these glitches and everything, and I was blaming it on motel internet. Turns yeah. out that somehow when I plugged in to this hotel room, it blew out all of the fuses on my USB ports on the motherboard. So it has this auto fuse reset and it resets and it'll be good for a while and then it'll die again. And then it'll be good for a while and then it'll die again. So I have another motherboard on order. So I am not just because I have good tools <laughs> does not mean that you are above any kind of <laughs> catastrophic, horrible failure. Um, and that I talked to Gigabyte, they're going to replace the board. But man, it totally sucks. Yeah. And then my MSI uh, gaming laptop, the GS60, that one's down for the count. And I, until I have an actual physical address, I can't you send just... it in for freaking repairs. So. You oh my god watched, DJ, you just watch next week the the ultrabooks not even gonna work you're gonna be on your android phone <laughs> doing the podcast oh, man. another <laughs> horror thing another horror story is uh, i just got a an email back from somebody who's uh, renting one of my 5d mark threes and he's like hey um i'm getting a blue line across the bottom of the screen in my footage what do i do and i'm like <sighs> what he's like yeah it's glitching oh. like He's like, we just shot a bunch of stuff and we went back and, uh, and we were checking in post and like every 20th shot or something, there's a weird little blue line that's going across the bottom. So luckily I was able to talk with him over the phone and get it sorted out. Turns out there was a battery grip on there that was just going sideways and like it was glitching out the power feed, but that could have been a yet another awesome line of catastrophic failures in my otherwise wonderful motel living <laughs> lifestyle that I'm having right now. So yeah, uh, <laughs> good equipment does not necessarily mean that you are in any kind of better spot than anybody else, man. It's, mm -hmm. it's rough. And then when all these things come in at the same time, the taxes thing, that's going to be like nine grand getting oh, yeah. the new motherboard and stuff for the computer. That's a uh, 500 bucks. Cause I figured I might as well throw in a nicer processor while I'm at it. And then, you know, on yeah. top of that, you have sitting in your $2,000 uh, editing laptop that has done very little editing and has basically been a paperweight for the last mm -hmm. month and a half. It's, it sucks. It's, I mean, I guess I can't complain too much, but you know, the more stuff you get, the more stuff can break down. So yep. more simplify, get the easy stuff. When you do a podcast, try to make sure your USB <laughs> ports work. That's very mm -hmm. important. Uh, Devin, we're down to the pick of the week, man. What do you got? Uh, my pick of the week is, um, there isn't a specific name for it, I guess, but if you had to search for it on Google, it'd be a 5.25 inch uh, to 3.5 inch converter. And what that means... Ooh, is someone main... throwing in some SSDs into their system? <laughs> what, what that's for is uh, I see more and more as these SSDs are dropping in price and 
boy, are they dropping? I mean, we're talking about one terabytes for, you know, 350, sometimes even 320 or 330. Uh, that makes them look very attractive, not just for, you know, um, as scratch drives and edit drives, but also as storage too. And I see them dropping in price and because they are small and they are extremely durable, I wouldn't be surprised as, as an editor, people start sending me SSDs instead of sending me little external drives. Uh, and this is great for a multitude of effects, but back to uh, the, what I'm talking about itself, they make, uh, for those of you that haven't seen it before, your CD-ROM drive in your desktop computer, I'm talking mostly to the uh, PC guys here, not so much the Mac guys, but uh, your CD-ROM drive uh, can be pulled out and converted to hold uh, either full-size hard drives or even smaller SSD drives. And that's great because um, some people prefer the external toaster. I just don't think it's necessary because I'm not swapping drives all day. Uh, if you are, then maybe good for you. Go for that. Uh, but having that internal, I mean, USB 3 is really fast. But if you really want uh, the best, uh, I think they call it hop, IO hop or something like that, the best speeds you want, uh, having it plugged straight into your computer is the way to go. And they make these converters where you can turn them off plug in a hard drive, turn it on, and bam, the drive pops up on your computer. And people start sending me SSD drives. Those are drives I can even edit off of. I don't need to sit here and wait to copy them to my RAID or something like that to edit off of. In most cases, if I don't need a ton of space or a ton of speed, an SSD is fast enough to do most of your 1080p editing anyways. So I can get a drive in the mail, rip it open, shove it into my computer, flip it on, and start editing straight off of that footage. And when I'm done, pull it out, ship it back to them. Um, because the SSDs are way more reliable and, uh, you know, their lifespan is much better and they handle temperatures better than mechanical. So there's all those kind of uh, features to it. And these adapters for your computer cost 20 bucks, maybe 30 bucks uh, as well. I've got one that holds full size drives. I buy four terabyte uh, mechanical hard drives. I back up a bunch of stuff to it and then I pull it out, put it away and put another one in and keep backing stuff up to it. So this also could be done with toasters too, if that's your thing, if you want to have an external device that you plug and unplug hard drives into. But I kind of like the clean look of having it built into the computer itself. So that's my pick of the week. There's several brands. Just I usually go off of Newegg ratings or what have you, but they're super cheap and they come in extremely handy if you're swapping out hard drives and you're editing a lot of different projects at once. Uh, for me, actually, it's SSD related as well. Uh, the Samsung 840 Evo, if you guys are familiar with that, that's been a, a love-hate relationship for me for quite some time. <laughs> I loved that drive, so I bought a bunch of them. I have in my possession, I believe, three one terabyte 840 Evos and several 500 gig uh, one terabyte 840 Evos. And if you're familiar with the issues they had, uh, data reads for data that's been on there for three to six months, it starts to get stale, which means uh, basically reads were going down to 60 or 70 megs, which is awful for an SSD. Uh, Samsung, who has continued to work on this, has finally come up with a patch. And I'll put that in the show notes for you guys to find. Um, Magician 4.6 adds a firmware update to the drives, which has fixed the finally fixed the stale data issue that has been a problem for the last year and a half of this drive's yeah, lifespan. It's been a long time, jeez. <laughs> if you were lucky enough to pick up one of the 840 Evo one terabyte drives before this was released, which was last week, the drives were all the way down to $250 for the uh, one terabyte model. Now that this is released, it looks like they've jumped all the way back up to 350 or so. So no mm -hmm. savings there anymore. But 
the fix has been tested by PC Purr as well as a few other sites, and uh, looks like it does, in fact, fix the stale data issue. Uh, it also has an extra bonus of allowing you to sequentially order everything on your drive. So it goes to uh, the cache level and actually uh, fills everything up and puts all your data in order so that you can read and write faster to the drive and clears out sectors. Sort of like the whole like uh, sex the sector issue that you used to do with like spinning drives. Only this is going down to... Yeah, exactly. You're not really defragging this, but it's basically utilizing all of the flash memory on the SSD in order so that when it's indexing everything, it can find stuff faster. It can get to stuff easier and it's all right there as opposed to going to different chips to find different stuff or whatever. So that's an extra feature. You can find that in the um, control section of uh, magician 4.6. It's kind of hard to download right now because it's so popular that uh, Samsung (laughs) has actually shut down the site and limited the number of server downloads per day. But if you go to techdad.com or pcper.com, and I'll, again, I'll have the links to that in the show notes, they have several links to people who've downloaded it and posted a version available. Uh, TechSpot has one, Major Geeks, uh, Mega also has a copy of it that you can download and get going with that update. I did test it on some long-term storage stuff that I kept as a kind of... Uh, canary in the coal mine for when things started going started going <laughs> south on those drives and it does look like i'm getting 400 and 400 plus megasecond reads again so it does seem to be doing the trick and now i can use my one terabyte drives without fear of uh reading super slow and they to are be honest, still cheap on and, ebay you can still oh, get them still for about 320 i don't know if people don't know that there's been a fix yet but I am finding a couple of one terabyte 840 Evos from Samsung for about 320, 315 on eBay. Chances are those are going to get snapped up real quick, but maybe if you hear this in time and you've been waiting around now that there's a fix for it, uh, now may be the time to hop on one of those uh, good deals, which isn't the best deal that they've ever had. But right now, 320 for a one terabyte SSD from a brand like Sam, uh, Samsung that's as good as it's going to get probably until we start to near uh, third or fourth quarter. So, Yeah, and one of the things to think about with that too is uh, the reason I didn't just chuck all those drives and sell them right away is because for the most part, I use them for editing and a lot of data doesn't end up getting stale because I'm constantly moving big projects onto the SSD to edit and then off of the SSD for storage. And because of that, the files usually are manipulated and worked with within you know a week or two of loading onto the editing SSD drive. And then they go back into storage on a four terabyte RAID array or onto the server itself. So if you're using them for video editing, honestly, most people are probably not going to run into huge issues, even with the issues that were known problems for those drives. The point where it gets to be a problem is if you're using it for your operating system, if there's folders or files or whatever that don't get used very often or read from very often, uh, they will start to go stale. And that was an issue. Also, if you're using it as a gaming drive and let's say you haven't played Arkham Asylum for four months and then you go back to play Mm -hmm. it again, you've got it loaded on your fastest drive. Now it's actually playing slower off of that drive than it would off of a spinning drive. That's going to be an issue. So that's where that really struck home for people, but it's great 
that this product is a year and a half old and Samsung is still like stuck with it and gone ahead and fixed everything. Uh, for those of you not familiar with it, the new uh, tri-level NAND that they're using in the 850 Evo and so on doesn't exhibit the same structure format because they're using that uh, 3D or 2.5D layering. So they don't have any drift in reads from those and they didn't have to do any sort of special fixes for that. This was just affecting the 840 Evo series and they have completely changed the way they make their NAND now. So you don't have to worry about triple level NAND anymore. It's all good to go. And it looks like this is fixed. So that's good to go. You can get one of these <laughs> for a really good price. Go out and buy one or whatever. Mm -hmm. the, the other one to look at, a Crucial, has some really awesome prices right now on their M500 series. Uh, and I believe those come in a 960 uh, gig flavor as well as a one terabyte flavor. So look into those too. Sometimes you can get those on sale for 280, 290. And they are very nice drives as well. Uh, SSDs are drives. awesome. Yeah. So Mudskin also isn't bad either. If you're not concerned with top of the line speed, uh, Mud, I think you pronounce it Munchkin. I'm not sure. Munchkin, Mushkin, Mushkin. They have really good deals. They're cheaper than a lot of the competition. But unlike um, uh, OCZ and some of the other drives, they seem to be super reliable. They get really good reviews, even if they aren't the fastest SSDs out there. So if you just if you just only care about having something twice as uh, three times as fast as a mechanical drive instead of four times as fast as your mechanical drive, uh, those drives seem to have really good deals a lot of the time, and they seem to be reliable too. And I've got uh, a buddy of mine who runs one for his OS and hasn't had any issues. So uh, one other thing, uh, while we're talking about SSDs, have you seen? The new crazy fast uh, Intel 750 drives. 750? No. Okay, no, so it's, is this like a like one of those RAID cards inside of your computer? No. Okay, so this is an SSD that bypasses SATA and goes straight into your PCIe slot, and it doesn't have to use uh, HCHI or or ACHI, the normal hard drive uh, overhead. So ACHI, it has almost yeah. zero. Yeah, am I saying that right, ACHI? So it doesn't have any impact on your CPU usage at all, and it's able to sustain reads and writes in the 2.6 gig speed levels. So like <laughs> almost approaching like the the bandwidth for the bus that it's hanging out on. It, it is insane. Uh, they have a, a 400 gig version and a one terabyte version. I, I believe the 400 gig version is like, 800 bucks and the the one terabyte version is somewhere in the thousand dollar range i might be getting yeah. those prices mixed up it would be 800 no, no, for the, right. the bigger one but gigabytes for 410 free shipping yeah so <laughs> they are freaking they are sexy if you want the fastest thing ever mm -hmm. man that is where it's at uh this gets into practical issues though because if you think about even like worst offenders like us you know doing tons of video editing with lots of of files that are rather large we don't even really bump up against that very often with 4k editing unless you have some sort of massive kodak uh when i'm, I'm trying to think like when do you need all of the bandwidth like that to get to 2.6 right. gig jeez to be honest, um, anyone who has an uncompressed workflow, uh, this is the kind of thing that you need to look at. Because uh, to give you an example here, um, at the station, we had an issue with uh, uh, the Blackmagic ATEM 
produces through its HDSDI output for its program output produces 16 tracks of audio. And those 16 audio okay. tracks was kind of screwing up our distribution point. And we are using one of those little shuttle guys to record the, you know, they don't have a display or anything. You just hit record and it records to an SSD. So we needed to fix that. So we decided to fix that with a black magic uh, SDI to Thunderbolt connector. Now this was plugged into an, a 23 inch iMac, which has an i5 and like eight gigs of RAM, not a very powerful system. What's interesting is that when we do uncompressed, that i5 can record it just fine if we record to an SSD, because of course the internal hard drive isn't gonna be fast enough for, uh, for uncompressed 1080p uh, 10 bit footage. So we had to plug in a, a SSD through USB 3, but when we switched over to H.264, or no, ProRes, ProRes recording, ProRes recording took a little bit of CPU, uh, but it does even allow us to use the internal drive because of course the file size is a lot smaller. This is I, what I really think is really what these things are for in terms of video world is uncompressed. If you ever render uncompressed, your bottleneck is almost always your IO and never the CPU. And that's what's affecting your render times, uh, except for some people who have, you know, uh, dual Xeons or something like that and the latest and greatest. Most of the time when I render uncompressed, which is rare because most of the times you don't deliver uncompressed, but when I render uncompressed, my bottleneck is the IO. So even on an SSD, it's the IO, not the CPU, though SSDs do get it there. So this is one of those, uh, though, where I see that there's so much available there. I'm like, damn, you could almost use some of that for RAM. Just chop off like, you know, 30 gigs of it for RAM just for doing After Effects or something like that. Because it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, that. that's true. So you're thinking like maybe setting up in like a swap pool sort of setting. So that way it's it's basically using this crazy fast hard drive as RAM access for like After Effects pre-rendering and stuff like that. And especially if you're doing Cinema 4D, which we all know they need tons of RAM. When they go to render, they're usually rendering uncompressed because they have so much CPU anyways. They're not going to waste CPU cycles converting to JPEG or PNG. So I know a lot of 3D guys who render uncompressed for uh, their sequences as well. And so something like this means that you don't have that I.O. problem. I could see this being really interesting, though, to kind of build out a storage server that allows multiple people to edit and render to uh, one system. I mean, you would need dual gigabits and stuff like that, depending on how many editors you have. But this could almost become like a mini RAID system. It's not huge. We're not talking terabytes of space, but you could stick this in a computer with uh, load balancing dual Intel gigabit cards and boom, for very little money, you have an extremely fast server uh, that you don't need to worry about RAID storage or anything else on, and the life of it is extremely long as well. So that's something to think about as well. Is as uh, you know, if you have multiple people that need to access something, this is a very very quick solution to access uh, a bunch of stuff together. So there's quite a few ways that you could use it, uh, but this isn't a silver bullet for any one problem. Yeah, it's an expensive solution, but it is pretty sexy. I don't <laughs> think this will be on my buy list. What was yeah, the last exactly. time you bought this a hard drive dollar for gigabyte? I could tell you what I bought mine. Mine was probably in high school when I bought a 60 gigabyte hard drive for $65. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus. Yeah, it's been a long time. Um, dollar per gigabyte. I think uh, <laughs> the last time I remember spending a crazy amount, and it says, this was actually more than a dollar per gig, but uh, I had a quantum fireball that I needed for one oh. of those audio recorder units. And the quantum fireballs, if you're not familiar with it, those were known for just being crap <laughs> hard drives. They failed all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's great that they're named the fireball, you know. But um, that one, I think it was like a 
it was like eight gig or a 20 gig drive. Maybe it was, yeah. it might even been smaller than that, like four gig. And I think I paid like 140 bucks or 150 Jeez. bucks for it. And it was like two oh. years later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Super sweet drive. Oh man. But yeah, so we live in a great world where <laughs> technology is just super cheap. I mean, 4K cameras, we've got awesome computers, we've got all this stuff. And like you can put you can put an entire kit together and become a filmmaker for sub like ten thousand dollars really easily. Whereas in the old days, you know, buying film alone would set you back that much, let alone oh, yeah. you know, renting an Aries camera, getting some uh, Panavision lenses and all the other stuff that would be required. You were talking hundreds of thousands of dollars invested. So yes. get out there and film, guys. I, I know I always end up saying that, but there's no, no sense excuses. in owning all this super sweet gear or even talking about it if you don't go out and film something. And actually, one more thing before we close up the show, and I just wanted to bring this up. Um, there's an excellent project that's been going around city to city. And if you don't have anything to do on the weekend or you have a day off, um, you can volunteer for it or you can start your own. But they basically go out to these flea markets slash um, you know, farmers markets and they set up a camera and they just do free portraits all day. So that's it. You just try to think of creative ways to take a portrait in the same spot of like the people in line who are coming up to get their portrait taken. And then, you know, I don't know if this is the way they plan on doing it, but I was thinking about this. What if you did the portraits, you showed them to everybody, and then you gave them a card and said, you can, you can pick this portrait up on the site for 20 bucks if you like it. If you don't, no problem. Don't worry about it. And now you have like your name out there as a filmmaker slash photographer. You've met all these possible clients and you have generated a bunch of people going to a website that is based on you so now you've popularized your product and what you have to offer and you've met them all and you've given them sort of some free value out there by like taking their portraits so something to think about that i was just brainstorming on the other day uh free portrait day at one of these events plus like Think about your portfolio. If you're trying to build something up, that would be pretty cool to get you a lot of interesting stuff. Devin, you got anything else before we go? Uh, no, you can find out more of my stuff at impulsenetworks.tv. Uh, I went ahead and did a review on uh, some popular uh, websites for getting feedback on your footage between you and your clients and stuff like that, at least from my perspective, because uh, different tools for different jo uh, jobs. But impulse.tv is where you can find that along with a few other reviews and other stuff that I'm working on. Well, on that note, guys, you can find this podcast as usual on SoundCloud. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it on YouTube, or you can swing by DSLRFilmNoob.com to check out more stuff. Unfortunately, that's not being updated very often right now because I am travel status. I will have a home again, I believe, March 14th. Once I live in a location, reviews will commence again. I've got a bunch of cool stuff in that I would like to start playing with and reviewing. So look forward to that. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll catch up with you next time on DSLR Film Noob. <laughs> <laughs>